Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello and thank you for joining us on the podcast we call Space Nuts. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley, and joining me as always, astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, sir. How are you? <laughs> you don't have to call me, sir. It's quite all right. I always <laughs> like to um, be polite to seniors. Ah, thanks a lot. Well, yes, I'm very well. Considering how senior I am, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. <laughs> uh, dear, I'm getting very close to that myself, so I've got to be careful. It'll come back to bite me one day. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, round two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, Fred, um, some interesting and fascinating and somewhat bizarre stories to talk about today. Uh, first of all, the seven-year mission to Mercury. This sounds uh, rather ambitious. Uh, and why Mercury? I'm sure you'll be able to tell us that. Uh, but this other story that we're going to discuss is just out there. And, uh, you know, you heard the phrase only in America referring to weird news. Well, now I think it's only in China because more weird news comes out of China and the subcontinent than anywhere else these days. And this one has got to be right up there, almost literally. Um, China is considering putting a fake moon into orbit, orbit to brighten the sky. No, it is it fake news? We don't know, but uh, we're going to talk about it anyway. And we've got a couple of questions we're going to uh, deal with from Scott, who wants to talk about asteroid capture, and Michael, who wants to look at uh, rescuing astronauts who are stranded after a failed liftoff, which happened the other day, Fred. So we'll get into those. But first, this seven-year mission to Mercury. What's the story behind this one? This looks like a joint venture approach. It is. That's exactly right, Andrew. It's a joint project of the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency. And uh, in fact, it's, it's more than a joint project because it's actually a joint spacecraft. There are two spacecraft involved here. Uh, technically, there are three, uh, but one of them is the sort of propulsion module that gets the other two uh, to the planet Mercury. So this is a kind of follow up of the messenger mission, which was uh, in orbit around Mercury uh, a few years ago, um, a NASA mission which taught us a huge amount about Mercury. But like all the, you know, like most space missions, it raised more questions than it answered, uh, including some you know, very interesting questions about the magnetic field of Mercury. Uh, it, it, Messenger also was a bit limited in the, the, the shape of the orbit of the spacecraft around the planet Mercury meant that it was really only the northern hemisphere of Mercury that could be mapped in, in detail. So there's still a lot of Mercury that is uh, not unexplored so much, but certainly not explored in as much detail as the Northern Hemisphere. So the Bepi Colombo mission is designed to answer as many of those questions as possible. Its name, by the way, comes from 
um, actually a, a scientist, uh, not a politician or any anything like that. It was a it was a mathematician um, and uh, basically a space engineer. Worked at the University of Padua in Italy. His name was Giuseppe. Colombo, his nickname was Beppe, and Beppe Colombo uh, is the name of the mission. He was born in 1920 and uh, lived until 1984. So it's honoring a past master at uh, uh, orbital dynamics. And the reason why he's he's uh, celebrated in this mission is that he, he was especially interested in the orbit of Mercury, did a lot of work on how you could get the spacecraft into orbit around Mercury. But more especially, he was um, the person who first implemented the idea of a gravity assist. You know, when you okay. when you fly by a, a planet and pick up some of the momentum of the planet to which, gain energy. Which is what they did to um, with the Voyager missions because the Voyagers, there's no that's right. way they could have travelled that, that far uh, yeah. on fuel alone. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I think um, the first spacecraft to use it was actually earlier than that. It was in 1974. It was Mariner 10, um, and that used gravity assist. But uh, gravity assist will come into its own with the with the Bepi Colombo flight to Mercury, because paradoxically, when you you know fall into the inner solar system. Uh, and uh, try and rendezvous with a planet like Mercury, you need huge amounts of energy. Uh, you think, oh, yeah, you just kind of let the thing drop towards the sun, but it doesn't work like that. Mm. Um, you've got to lose the energy of the Earth, first of all, and then you've got to catch up Mercury because Mercury is, is uh, moving much more rapidly in its orbit than the Earth is because it's closer to the sun. Yeah. So this uh, this flight involves no fewer than nine separate flybys, um, one of the Earth, two of Venus, and six of Mercury itself. Wow. Uh, so these are all gravity assist things that are effectively, you know, um, get, getting the spacecraft into its orbit around around Mercury. And uh, <laughs> the bottom line is it doesn't get there until December 2025. Because of all so, of this effort, they, all the yeah. mathematics behind it to make it to make it get to there, catch that's up right. to Mercury. Yeah, that's indeed, just that's amazing. Correct. Yeah, I was hoping that they were going to fly by Mars because you know a lot of a lot of spacecraft do slingshot around Mars, and it's going to set up a cafe, but no, nah, it's not going to work. <laughs> Probably not quite, but mm. it's certainly um, you know notwithstanding it's uh, the fact that it neglects to visit your favourite planet, Andrew, it's still pretty good going. Yes. Uh, so it was launched successfully on Saturday. Uh, um, that's the 20th of October. Um, it is on its way with a seven-year cruise phase. It's basically designed to have a, a one-year science phase, which will probably be extended as they nearly always are when, when they're successful. Um, the two separate spacecraft entities to this are, uh, first of all, the um, planetary orbiter, which was built by the European Space Agency, um, that uh, will essentially study the surface of the planet. It gets to within uh, 300 miles or 480 kilometers of the planet's surface at its uh, at, at its um, peri um, peri well what do you call it when it's Mercury perihermian oh there you are there there's you a are. nice word because it's Hermes. remembered that <laughs> yeah, Mercury perihermian um, um, 480 by 1500 kilometer orbit. Uh, but the other one, uh, the, which was the, the one constructed by the Japanese Space Agency, is the Mercury Magnetospheric Orbiter. And that's all about investigating 
the magnetic field of Mercury. That's in a, a rather bigger orbit. It will stretch further out. But the two will, um, you know, they're both in, um, in polar orbits. That means that they kind of both cover all, all parts of the planet's surface and all parts of its magnetosphere during, during their orbital uh, periods. Uh, and they're, they're, they're going to be complementary. So I, I really quite like the idea that if one of them finds something really interesting, you can get a different perspective on it from the other one, you know, mm. get a different view because there are these two, these two spacecraft. Cross-checking. Uh, yeah, that's right, cross-checking. So there's a thing called the Mercury Transfer Module as well, which is the propulsion unit, which essentially deals with the, the voyage to Mercury. That's jettisoned when they get into orbit. But just one interesting thing about that, it will use ion propulsion. So it uses, you know, electric propulsion rather than chemical rockets. Wow, a, that's really amazing. Yeah, it's neat stuff. There have been a number of spacecraft that have used that. Um, for example, uh, I can't remember which one it was, one that went to the moon that, uh, that used that. It, 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 the ion propulsion system gives very low amounts of thrust, but it gives it for a very long time. So you, you build up quite significant accelerations. Mm. So it just keeps um, on going. So, so they're basically going there like we always do to have a look. But, uh, have a look. <laughs> be, but because of previous missions, we have questions that need to be answered. So we're going to try and fill in some blanks as well. That, that's right. So there's, you know, the stuff that um, I think we'll be particularly interested in, uh, the fact that we believe there is uh, frozen water in the uh, in the poles of Mercury, the deep craters of the poles. There was certainly evidence of that in the in the Messenger mission, which, by the way, ran between 2011 and 2015. That's when Messenger was in orbit around Mercury. You and I talked about it yeah, several right. times. Mm. Um, the yeah, so it, it, because of the orbit of Bepi Colombo, it's going to look directly down into those craters uh, uh, near the North and South Poles. So that will be a very interesting thing to do to investigate directly what the what the amount of water ice uh, near the polar caps is. What it's you know. Yeah, it still blows my mind that something with such an incredibly high surface temperature, so close to the sun, could have ice in it. Yeah, it's it's slightly it is slightly counterintuitive. That's quite right. Yeah. And, and one of the other things um, that is uh, really interesting, and, and a surprise that came back from early the two uh, the earlier missions to Mercury, is that it has a big iron core. Its core is bigger in relation to the size of the planet than any of the other rocky planets. So it's got an iron core, which gives it a significant magnetic field. But um, the magnetic field's curious because unlike the Earth's magnetic field, which is basically centered on the center of the planet, mm. uh, the magnetic field of Mercury, if you imagine it you know, being replaced by a bar magnet, that magnet would be about 20% of the way from the center of the planet to the edge. It's not in the middle. Oh, uh, that's okay. a bit, so it's bit, just a bit wonky. Asymmetry, yes, Mercury's wonky, that's right. <laughs> and that's one reason why... You know why the um, why the, the the magnetic the magnetic magnetospheric orbiter will be doing its thing to try and map out and determine more accurately the the sharp size and shape of Mercury's magnetic field. Mm. Okay, so lots to learn, and uh, I, I love these longitudinal missions because we we talk seven years away, and then all of a sudden we'll get a news report saying, and blah blah blah, you know, Giuseppe Colombo mission has arrived at Mercury, and I go. Already? Well, wow. Where did the what last seven years go? Because <laughs> yes, right. we'll forget about it. And then 
it'll be on the news again. It'll be on the news again. Yeah, that's uh, right. But yeah, this is <laughs> this should be a lot of fun. Uh, so we will definitely keep an eye on this one, and um, yeah, there'll be lots to learn from from Mercury. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor. ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Space nuts. Now, Fred, I'm not sure if Donald Trump is behind this story, but it sounds like fake news. But uh, it's being reported by the um, highly credible source, the BBC, and probably several others, that a Chinese company has announced ambitious plans to put a fake moon into space to brighten the night sky. This is a country yeah. that is blanketed in pollution. <laughs> so, well, that's true. One wonders if that's the reason, but um, are they for real? Uh, it's it sounds a bit like a beat up, uh, really. Um, that you, you know the the orbital mechanics of this sort of thing don't always work the way you might think they do. Uh, but let's tell you what we know. And yes, the BBC is one of a number of outlets that have reported this, but it, it's actually coming from. Uh, an article in the People's Daily, the state newspaper itself in China. Oh, well, that's true. Um, uh, which reports that uh, there's a, an aerospace institute in in uh, the city of Chengdu, which uh, has, and the, the institute has announced plans that they want to launch uh, illumination satellites by 2020 that are bright enough to replace streetlights. Um it's Gee, that's, the BBC. that's a big call. However, the yeah. Russians did do this. 
they tried it, but it didn't work. Oh, uh, <laughs> I thought they had some success. Uh, yeah, I thought, well, maybe they did, but I think it only lasted half an hour or something like that. And, and of course, it's, it's um, you know, to say outright that launching anything like that, that is designed to illuminate the Earth's surface, uh, immediately raises um, questions about light pollution and things of that sort, which is very much um, a, a, an area of growing concern among, well, everybody, not just astronomers, but the medical profession, uh, but biologists, botanists, uh, people worried about insects being fooled into not pollinating crops and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, that is all now part of the province of the issue of light pollution. So it's bound to create um, a, a lot of raised eyebrows, um, but it's not straightforward. Uh, I, I, I like the BBC's comment, which says the following, the straight out of sci-fi news has sparked fascination, scepticism from scientists, lots of questions, an outright mockery. So that kind of more or less sums it up. It's apparently it is um, a, a person who is the chairman uh, of a company called the Chengdu Aerospace Institute Microelectronic System Research Institute Company Limited. That's their name. So there's two institutes in there, which is pretty interesting. Uh, but the chairman is a gentleman by the name of Wu Cheng Feng. Uh, and he says basically that there's been a lot of tests on the idea of putting some sort of mirror in orbit uh, in order to uh, to illuminate the surface of the Earth in the area of Chengdu. Uh, now, of course, you can't just do it with one mirror because uh, it, it, you need several in order to provide any kind of constant coverage. Um, um, you know that at, at the height of 500 kilometers, which is what they're talking about, mm. um, that means that you've got an orbital period around the Earth of something like 90 minutes. So uh, the spacecraft only passes over your uh, the area that you're interested in for a very short time. It's overhead for you know maybe five minutes at the most, and then uh, you've got to wait for it to come around again. You can do it actually in such a way. There are certain orbits, they're called sun-synchronous orbits, where uh, you've, the spacecraft passes overhead at more or less the same time each day. But it's still very messy. You're not sort of floating something in, the, in, in space that is always going to be beaming radiation down to the Earth. The only way you could do that, of course, would be to put it in a geostationary orbit yes. like, the, like the satellites are. But that's at a height of 36,000 kilometres. And you can imagine the size of the mirror you'd need to get any sort of light back from that sort of distance. Uh, spacecraft at that distance are virtually invisible, um, except with very large telescopes. I know they could use my wife's makeup mirror. It's enormous. Um, I'm not going to go there, Andrew. Uh, and I don't think you should either. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, I mean, you... uh, yeah, we're, we're mocking it a bit, and all the news outlets are having a bit of fun with it. And I do love the caption on the photo of the moth that says, has anybody thought what another moon would mean for moths? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a line straight out of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's beautiful, yeah. actually. But theoretically, this is possible. Uh, it's possible to do it, but it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't kind of solve the problem. You know, you, you're never going to have something that will mimic the moon. 
the, the, the moon's at a distance of 380,000 kilometers and behaves in a very, um, a very straightforward way. Mm. But the basically the um, uh, you know you know the idea of using something in lower Earth orbit doesn't doesn't really work. You're quite right about the the, the Russians having tried it. Um, it's it was, back in it was, 19. It was back in back than I thought. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Twenty meters wide. There it is. Yeah, and um, that was in low Earth orbit, uh, and the idea was to beam a, a light spot down to Earth. Um, uh, of course, that light spot travels across the Earth's surface at the orbital speed, which is eight kilometers per second, uh, and then this thing. Well, I don't think it actually worked terribly well. Uh, the it did blind a kid on a bike who fell into a ditch and killed a deer. There's probably something like that, yes. I don't uh, think so. <laughs> but, you know, I, I suppose the the nearest, kind of the nearest realistic thing that we've got to this, and I'm sure you've seen these, um, there has been in orbit for a number of years, well over a decade, a fleet of spacecraft called Iridium. And the Iridium spacecraft, uh, I think there were 66 of them, they're communication spacecraft, they're in a fairly low orbit, uh, but each one has three antennas on it, which basically are polished mirrors. They're like l large wardrobe mirrors, and they're all angled downwards. And when one of these things catches the light of the sun and reflects it down to where you're standing on the Earth, you see a spot of light, which is probably a thousand times brighter than the planet Venus. It is very bright wow. for a brief period of time, a matter of a couple of seconds. Um, and so there's, it's been you know, a bit of a hobby among um, among sky watchers to look up in the tables. And it's, it was very easy to find uh, when there will be what's called an iridium flare uh, and go outside with some unsuspecting mates and say, just look up there. Uh, and and instantly, you know, this thing appears and flashes by. It's very impressive when you mm. see uh, there's the... the, the, the you um, see the effect when you're flying and you look down and you see down, glints see of light coming that's back right. at you that's reflected, you know, the sun <laughs> reflecting off water or something like that, yeah. glass. Walls and things. That's right. Um, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, with the iridium flares, it was really quite spectacular because, <clears throat> of course, it, this was in the darkness. Um, the iridium, uh, those iridium spacecraft are now being replaced. Um, and I think very soon there won't be any of those original iridium spacecraft left. And the new ones that have replaced them don't have the reflective mirrors. So uh, that little hobby has now gone by the board. But that was an example of this kind of thing, of reflecting light spots down on the surface. It was fun for geeks for a while, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's, now, they're so, talking about this mission launching in 2020. And uh, are we taking it with a grain of salt that it probably won't happen? I my guess is it won't happen. Mm. Um, I think um, if it I think if it got anywhere near, there would be sort of major public outcries. There's already a quote on the BBC uh, webpage from John Barantine, a, a chap that we know quite well, who's uh, with the International Dark Sky Association, and he's he's basically saying uh, you know it's a bad idea yeah. uh, as you'd expect uh, because it's light pollution and you, you can't you know it's, it's you can't control it it it's hard to see how it works how it would work and it's certainly hard to see how it would save street lighting which is what they're saying uh, it will the china daily the the uh, one of the other news outlets in china quoted uh, mr wu the gentleman who was the chairman of this company uh, saying if you could illuminate an area of 50 square kilometres, you could save 
something like um, 173 million US dollars a year in electricity charges. But of course, you can't. You can only do it for a short time. It's um, probably it's cost not... you 173 million dollars to send the thing up there anyway. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, so yeah. we'll wait and see. We will wait and see what happens. They, they might surprise us. Who knows? And. Uh, you know, if your girlfriend sees that glint in your eye, just say, oh, no, no, that's just a fake moon. Fake moon. That's nothing to do with me. <laughs> oh, I'm not going there either, Andrew. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson there. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, to finish off this week, we've got a couple of questions. Uh, first of all, and thank you for sending them in and to everyone who writes to us. Uh, this one's from Michael Carey. Uh, with the failure of the rocket to deliver a new crew to and uh, take a returning crew from the space station, isn't there an emergency escape module there that could take the remaining crew back to Earth if needed? How would that work? We're talking about that mission the other day that lifted off and something went dreadfully wrong and the crew basically had to bail and they didn't get to the space station and the people up there have run out of toilet paper. It's, you know, it's, it's hell in space. It really is. But, um, <laughs> yeah, on the serious side of things, it could have been a dreadful disaster, but they, they all got away, which was the good news. But, yeah, what's the story with a backup plan is, I guess, what Michael is asking. Yeah, so, so Michael's absolutely right. That, that Yes, there is a module there. There's always um, a Soyuz uh, spacecraft docked with the International Space Station, uh, which is the it's the lifeboat, if you like. It's what will take you back to to the Earth. Um, uh, it was actually depicted in the, in the movie Gravity that there there was one of those. If you remember that scene where um, oh I yes, think, that's right. Yeah, yes. Filed into. So there anyway, was one, that, at least one thing accurate about that film. That's right. That's correct. <laughs> so um, when when. Um, a, a crew goes up to the space station. This is the current the current way that it works because it's going to change when the the new SpaceX um, Dragon modules start being used for human uh, transfer up and down from the space station. But at the moment, it's a Soyuz. Um, the the crew that comes up, the replacement crew comes up in a Soyuz spacecraft and goes down back down again in the old one, the one that brought the previous crew up. So that there's always a kind of fresh, uh, fully fueled up, uh, you know, fully equipped Soyuz spacecraft waiting up there should there need to be a return to Earth. Right. Now, at, at the moment, there are three astronauts on board the space station and the Soyuz is a three-person spacecraft. Uh, but the full complement of astronauts on the space station has been six. Uh, and that would, of course, require two Soyuz spacecraft to be there. And to the best of my recollection, that was always the case. There were two uh, on standby. Or six uh, the other, oh, that's right. <laughs> it's a bit hard to get. I mean, you should see inside those things. There's not a lot of room. No. Um, the uh, the other thing about these Soyuz spacecraft is that because they're re-entry modules, they're pretty tough. And so um, on a number of occasions when there has been an alert for space junk that could collide with the space station, what they've done is evacuated the astronauts into the Soyuz modules, just because that's a hardened area where, you know, where um, a a space junk would find it harder to penetrate. Mm. Uh, of course, uh, if you want to drill a hole in it, that's a different matter. That's yes, still that a, controversy uh, remains unsolved, yeah. does it not? We don't, we don't know what the answer to that is yeah. yet. Okay. But, 
So yes, uh, Michael, there is a backup plan. And uh, so they, they still can get back to earth and get some fresh toilet paper and whatever <laughs> else they need. Probably some um, um, body spray. Probably <laughs> so Andrew, have you, spray. Have, you, have you talked to anybody about this fascination with toilet paper? <laughs> I'm just, you know, I, I've actually interviewed a couple of astronauts and I, <laughs> I, I, I do actually ask audience uh, the audience to ask them questions and they and always go to the what, toilet. That's what you get. <laughs> they always go to the toilet. It's not me. This is this is audience requirements. All right. Okay. Yeah. How do you go to the toilet? Oh gosh, here we go again. Here we go again. Yeah. yeah. I think Andy Thomas, the Australian astronaut, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's sick of talking about what. Yes, I'm how sure. You go to the toilet. I want to know how Neil Armstrong went to the toilet. I think they just pooped in the suit. But um, um, more or less, that's right. Yeah. These days, it's a little bit more human. But uh, okay, thank you, Michael. Now we're going to move on to our next question from Scott Keim. Uh, Fred and Andrew, I want to start by saying how much I enjoy your podcast. Oh, thanks, Scott. Well, actually, we're going to change it now. Uh, <laughs> I, I listen to it every week. You guys talk about all the stuff that I find fascinating about space. Well, there's one, Fred. Uh, I'm an aspiring sci-fi author. Oh, so am I. Let's compare notes. And I have a couple of questions regarding asteroids uh, for my book, if anyone could answer. It would be you guys. Mm. Here it is. Would it be possible to pull a close flying asteroid into orbit around Earth? Would it be possible to force a controlled asteroid landing onto Earth without endangering the environment or life or kids on bikes? Uh, another uh, couple of questions. How would this be accomplished? And are we close to having these capabilities or are we still a long way off? Um, yeah, they're great questions. And uh, I, I guess, uh, as in so many of these things, the answer is it depends. Uh, because what it depends on is how big an asteroid you're talking about. Um, ah. You know, and, and once again, there's this gray area between a large, uh, a large meteoroid, as it will be uh, when it was out there in space. It's only a meteor when it hits the atmosphere and a meteorite if it hits the ground. But a large meteoroid may be, you know, um, five meters across something like that uh, is, can you count that as a small asteroid mm. i don't know it's uh, there's a gray area between the two 10 meters i would say will be a you know a reasonable cutoff for small asteroids um but even something 10 meters across has a huge mass to it yeah because it's solid rock it's much more than a 10 meter spacecraft uh, in terms of the mass that you're talking about dealing with. And so to change its velocity means you need a fair bit of thrust. So yes, you can imagine uh, tying a rocket motor onto an asteroid, and that's what, certainly one of the solutions for um, altering the orbits of asteroids that may one day threaten the Earth, and there aren't any at the moment, at least not over the next couple of hundred years. Uh, but if we did find something like that, then uh, fixing a rocket excuse me, a rocket motor to it uh, and giving it a thrust in a particular direction will be one way of changing the orbit enough that you could miss a collision. That's the, the whole idea of that. You, you, you probably need 10 years advance notice to do that, though, because the force you can apply to the asteroid, even a relatively small one, is small compared with the mass of the asteroid. Mm. And that's exactly the problem that um, you, you know that that Darren's uh, basically facing here. Uh, if if you want to um, pull a close flying asteroid into orbit around the Earth, you've got to change its or its velocity by a lot. 
um, because you've got to slow it down to put it in a, an eight kilometer per second orbit around the Earth when it's probably going by at, well, it might be 20 kilometers per second or something like that. Um, and that, so if you've got a massive asteroid, you need a hugely massive propulsion system to do that. And I don't think we're anywhere near that at the moment. This problem was actually portrayed in the movie The Martian when they had to try and capture the astronaut when he got off Mars. And I think his initial um, speed was 42 metres per second, which would have made it impossible to capture him. So they had to slow the, air, uh, the uh, spaceship down by blowing the hull and air braking, basically. I remember that, yeah. And yeah. They, they got their speed down to something like 12 metres per second or some, some uh, manageable figure. Uh, he ended up doing the Iron Man thing anyway, and that, that sort of took it beyond the realms of likelihood. But um, th this is a completely different prospect, catching a person versus catching a massive rock. Yes. Uh, and, and even if you could, what would you do next to get it inside the atmosphere and on the ground softly? Because once you get inside the uh, Earth's um, atmosphere, gravity takes over and the damn thing's as heavy as a rock. That, well, uh, yeah, it, that, that's right. You'd have a re-entry. So, so the other part of um, Darren's question is, would it be possible to force a controlled asteroid landing onto Earth without endangering the environment or life? Uh, at the moment, we, we just don't have the technology to do that because, and again, it's all about the amount of thrust you'd need to, to slow it down and to bring it down with a controlled re-entry. Um, it's, you know, when you think about a spacecraft uh, re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, uh, like the Soyuz, they come down, they, they are slowed by the, atmos the atmosphere itself. There's what's called aerobraking, which is the friction of the atmosphere slowing down the spacecraft. That makes it very hot. Uh, but the last, you know, the, the, the final <clears throat> few kilometers or few hundred meters of meters is, is on parachutes. Uh, now, parachutes and asteroids don't sort of really scan in the same sentence. Um, so I think we are a long way from that kind of technology. Uh, maybe a science fiction writer could think of possible uh, new technologies that might allow, allow that. But um, for somebody whose who's, um, feet are based on 19th century engineering, it doesn't look like a, doesn't look like a, a good prospect at the so moment. So there you go, Darren. Probably not in the foreseeable or maybe even the long-term future. But let me give you a little bit of advice about science fiction. It's science fiction. You can do whatever you damn well like. Yeah, that's true. That's so absolutely don't let that stop you. Don't let <laughs> facts get in the way of a good story. There's the journalistic uh, mantra, <laughs> if I may. So, uh, Which you've followed faithfully all your life. <laughs> go for it. Yeah, true enough. Just yeah. like the story about the fake moon. Um, yes, Darren, and thanks for your question. And sorry, I got your name wrong. I called you Scott. That's your middle. No, I'm saying you're, you're probably hyphenated, aren't you? Darren Scott Kime. Nice. All right, uh, Darren, good luck with the novel and let us know when it, when it's out because um, I will get a copy as long as you buy mine, which is due out <laughs> next year. We'll see how that goes. Um, and, and thanks to, um, who was it, Michael as well for his question. And thank you to everybody who contacts us, even those that just write to say hello or send us a video or a picture or something like that. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And thank you, Fred, as always. It's just great fun and I think everyone's getting a big kick out of it. 
It's a great pleasure, Andrew. So am I. So we'll speak again next week, I hope. We will indeed. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you again for listening to Space Nuts. See you next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.